Well, good morning. I'm Julie Coleman. I'm uh, part of the teaching team uh, here at New Hope, New Hope Chapel, and we're delighted to have you all here this morning. Um, we're going to continue our series, Exodus on Exodus, God on the Move. Um, and I'm going to start you with a little story about Steve and I when we were first married. Aren't we cute? <laughs> so that was probably the happier day of the next two years. <laughs> And not because we didn't like each other, but because we were poor. Steve was in grad school full-time. I was teaching at Brown Academy for $7,000 a year. And we were living in government-subsidized housing, trying to scrape together our pennies to make sure we made it. Um, and so it was a hard time. And we used to have, uh, you know, go, go places, and we would drive by neighborhoods, and we would just covet their houses. I would like to live in that one. Well, look at this neighborhood. It's got such good sidewalks for walking children and, uh, you know, all the things, trees and fireplaces and all the things that we wished we could have. Well, now, 39 years later, Steve and I often say, in our appreciation to what God has given us in these past years, had we, uh, if we could have seen what he had planned for us, we would have relaxed in those hard times. We would have said, it's okay, the good stuff is coming. Um, and then we would have stopped trying to overreach and make things happen. We actually thought about buying at one point a chicken, we called it the chicken coop because that's pretty much what it was. It was a house with no electricity and the sink emptied out into the ground outside. And so that was just, it was crazy. But we thought, oh, we could fix it up. We could make it ours. Lord didn't let us, thank goodness. Um, we would have gladly waited on him for the, that first house that he gave us. But I found that most time in my life, I can only take wild guesses at what God is up to. We'd like to think what he's going to do, but if we could take a look behind the metaphorical curtain and look and see the big picture of what he's doing in our lives, I think it would make a big difference in how we respond to him to times of testing and suffering. It would make it easier to wait on him with trust. Well, I have news for you this morning. We have that opportunity. Exodus gives us a unique chance to pull back that curtain and take a look at the big picture. Uh, chance to back away and see God's careful, complicated work, how he's moving in individuals, in a nation, and in the world. We see him work small to big picture in Exodus chapter 2, and I'm really excited about sharing what I learned with you because he's the same God now that he was then, so it's good for us to learn and see what he did. Now, we're starting at Exodus. We're only in chapter 2, so it's pretty early on in the series. But um, we do, I do want to just kind of confirm where we're going with this because the Bible is one big story, and we want to make sure that we get the context of the things in Exodus. It started, well, at chapter 11 of Genesis, the family started with Abraham. Um, God called him. He promised him he's going to be the father of a great nation, and he was going to give them land where they could dwell, and he would be a his descendants would be a blessing to all the earth. And then God gives Abraham a bird's eye glimpse into the future. Not too many of us get that. He says this, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they ser will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions." This is hundreds and hundreds of years before we start Exodus. And then we watched how God carried it out. He started with Abraham. 
Abraham had Isaac, the family line went through Jacob, and then his 12 sons. And now here we are, 400 years in the rearview mirror, and the 12 sons of Jacob have now become a nation, probably 2 million strong. And they are enslaved, just like God said. But all of that is about to change. The time is up. So the baby in the basket that we heard about the other week, adopted by the prince of Egypt, he lived his childhood in uh, the royal palace. And now the story picks up with Moses as an adult, around 40 years old. And we're going to see three ways that God was on the move. First, he was on the move in Moses, then in the Hebrew nation, and then in the world. So the picture keeps getting bigger. So let's start by reading Exodus 2, 1 to 11. Now, it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? <gasps> then Moses was afraid and said, Surely this matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Let's just ask God's help in this passage. Lord, thank you so much that you're with us in this room, that your Holy Spirit is in us, and that he can show us and guide us into truth. And Lord, I just pray as we talk about your word this morning that we will do it honor and that you will use it uh, for your glory in all of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So God was on the move. And this time we're going to be looking at Moses, an individual, one person. But you got to think, this fugitive, this murderer is going to be the great redeemer of Israel? You couldn't have found somebody better than that? Then who's, who, the one who's going to be supposedly shepherding two million people? I mean, we know that part of the story already. The one who God speaks through? This guy? Well, what do we know about Moses at that time when he was 40 years old? Well, uh, the first thing we know is that he had a stellar education. Um, Acts 7.22, and I'm going to be quoting from Acts a couple of times it's when Stephen was giving a, uh, a, not a sermon, but a kind of a defense of his faith in front of the Sanhedrin just before they martyred him. And he talked about Moses, and I got some, of course, he's got insight from the Holy Spirit in doing that, so I'm, I'm combining what he says and what we see in Exodus uh, to give us a full picture. This is what Stephen said. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. What would he have studied then? Well, he would have studied law, Hammurabi's code probably. Um, we know for sure that they had a great university in Egypt at the time, and it was comparable in esteem to Harvard or Oxford today. He would have been instructed in things like astronomy, chemistry, mathematics, engineering, music, and art. So he had quite the education. Now the riches of Egypt were at his disposal. In Hebrews it says, considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. So he gave up the treasures of Egypt and, and went with the Israelites is what it's saying. So he had access to the cream of everything. 
He was part of the royal family, so if he rode on a chariot, the people on the street bowed down. He would have had the best of everything. If Moses traveled down the Nile by barge, it was among the finest in Egypt. Um, up until this exile, he lived a privileged life. And he also knew where he originated. This is what Stephen tells us. When he was approaching the age of 40, it, meant, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel, supposing his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. How did he know they were his brethren? He was raised in the palace. Well, first of all, he would have looked different than the, Israel, uh, the uh, Egyptians. And so, for sure, there would have been some questions. And maybe, uh, and I'm sure the princess answered them, because it is kind of a cool story. <laughs> and the other thing is that um, he was uh, nursed by his mother for the first few years of his life. And maybe there was a relationship that developed there, that either she went to the palace to visit him continually, or he went to her place. But in any case... He knew he was in his uh, Hebrew. He knew. And because it says, his brethren. So another thing that Stephen tells us is that Moses, and this one surprised me, was a man of power in words and deeds. We think of Moses as this guy saying, oh, I can't, uh, I can't speak God. You've got to get Aaron to speak for me. That's not who this guy is. This guy was a man with power in words and deeds. I mean, he had this great education. He had all this privilege growing up. The guy had power. And he was good with his words. With all, I'm sure he had debate back and forth with all the philosophy things that were going on then. So a man of power in words and deeds. Now, and Stephen makes it clear that he's saying this before the exile. When? Before he was 40. So I just want you to keep that picture in your head. Because next week we're going to see a different Moses. So evidently then, Moses said, Stephen says um, that Moses evidently saw his position as something that could be used maybe to set the Hebrews free. And he resonated with his birth family, as adopted ch children tend to do, and he had a heart to rescue them. He killed the man. And next day, when he tried to reconcile two fighting Hebrews, like a leader would do, his attempts to rescue, deliver, were rejected. So the deliverance thing, deliverance thing, not working out so well for Moses. He was a failure, but he had so much going for him. He was zealous. He was excited. He was loyal to the people, but he was way off in base, of, uh, off base terms of God's plan. He was acting on his own, not in the power of the Lord, no sense of dependence on him or the God of his people. He had a lot to learn. And to make matters worse, Pharaoh heard. And so he goes after Moses. So he's in fear for his life. With nowhere to turn, he flees the country. Uh, he goes east, and he ends up in a Midian camp. Well, and where there's a well, there's a settlement. So that's a natural place you would meet a stranger. And this is where the story picks up in the next few verses. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water and filled the troughs with, to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, he said, Why have you come back so soon today? So they said, <clears throat> An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what's more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he then? 
Why is it that you've left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. You know, it's interesting. Moses still has his hate for oppression uh, right on through, even for Midian girls. And uh, they were actually losing their battle for watering whites. It was a thing. And those men were driving them away. And Moses, again single-handedly, stood up to the bullies, and he made sure the flocks were watered by drawing the water himself. But did not go that well in, in Egypt, did it? He'd messed the whole thing up. But now, through this chance meeting at a well, chance meeting, he found safety, home, and family awaiting him. You know, there's nothing like desperation to make you sensitive to God's provision. When it happens, you're so relieved, and there's no doubt in your mind where it came from. And I really think that's what the first thing Moses learned in exile, that God would take care of him. So he marries one of the daughters. He settles down by marrying into that family. And his life, of course, had completely changed. How did it change? Well, he went from privileged status in Pharaoh's house to a fugitive exiled in a foreign land. The man was raised in a palace. He was raised for diplomatic duties, trained to be in a position of power. He was now a man rejected by his people, living in exile as a shepherd. From his vision of being a deliverer of the people, he was the caretaker of smelly sheep. So from a privileged son of a princess, he was now a shepherd. His lifestyle changed dramatically too. From the comfort, comfortable rooms of a palace, he lived out, his, uh, out in the elements, keeping watch over the sheep. From wealth and glamour, he lived this humble life in the house of this Midian priest. And also, he became a parent. So if that wasn't enough, and, and let's face it, parenting will knock the stuffing out of anybody. True? <laughs> I have a friend, uh, we were, were uh, working on a project together, our, ch our children were in high school, and so we were talking about our kids and raising them and you know, how difficult these ages were. I think they, the kids we were talking about were freshmen in high school, so a little dicey. But anyway, she said to me, you know, when my, kid, my son was little, I used to think, oh, how will I keep from being prideful when everyone sees what a great kid he is? And I, I just, I don't even know, I know how I was going to do it. She said, but in reality, I found out that uh, he wasn't for my pride. He was for my humility. <laughs> and that is the truth. I'm sure all parents can relate to that. For me, the perfect dream child went out the window before they even hit school. And my failures as a mom started to rack up. Because parenting is a journey into humility. So all three of those things that changed for Moses, do you see a pattern there? From high to low. From easy to hard. And now it, it's, it's, he's in that uh, mindset. And the writer gives us actually a clue to what was going on in his heart while he was in the desert. Because living in exile was never far from his mind. When his son was uh, firstborn, he was named Gershom. And he uh, said, I, because I have become an alien in a foreign land. That name stems from two Hebrew words that mean alien there and to drive out. So he's an alien that was driven out. It would be a constant reminder every time he said that kid's name of his banishment. Now, while God has not been mentioned so far in this story, at least this part of the story, he's plainly at work in Moses and for Moses. He's providing for his 
physical needs and purposely preparing him for what lays ahead. We know what lays ahead. Moses didn't. But it was a 40-year lesson in humility. Why humility? Why is that such an important trait for someone to have? Well, Paul explained it a little bit in 1 Corinthians. He said, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, so that no man may boast before the Lord. Moses was not going to succeed in his own strength, as he has already found out. But when he did, when he learned he could fully depend on God, then things were going to happen. So how well did Moses do in the school of hard knocks? Well, here's his report card. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. I'd say that's an A+, wouldn't you? So it was a lengthy education, 40 years long, but humility would be absolutely essential if he was going to be used as a tool for the Lord. So Moses couldn't see, but we see that big picture because we know God's plan for Moses. Someday he's going to lead his people to freedom. He'd be the greatest prophet that ever lived and carried God's message to the people. So now a second part of the narrative, God moves in a nation. We've seen him on the move for Moses, but he doesn't just work for individuals. He also worked with the entire Hebrew nation. So meanwhile, back at the ranch. Let's read the last part of our passage. Now it came about in the course of those many days, so back at the ranch, those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel. And God took notice of them. So the first thing I want you to notice is that uh, God... Uh, the, the king of Egypt died, and now there's this new pharaoh. So we just read that the other pharaoh, the one that just died, he wanted to kill Moses. So now the Lord puts a new person on the throne. He wanted that perfect person for what he was going to accomplish in bringing uh, Israelites home. So, uh, and Daniel even tells us that that's what he does. It says he removes kings and establishes kings. You want to know how somebody got into power? Look up. He's moving us like chess pieces, getting everything exactly the way he wants it to accomplish his will. So God also, uh, so he was working on behalf of them. God also planned, excuse me, judgment on two nations. When we go back to the promises that God made Abraham, we see for his plan for judgment on the other nations of the world at large. We see his plans for judgment on Egypt. It would be a time of terrible plagues, it would be, uh, they would happen before the Hebrews ever left Egypt. And when they entered the promised land, the Canaanites would experience judgment and lose their land and power to a nation of former slaves. So there are two bookends at the whole Exodus. One, Egypt gets judged. 40 years later, next one, as they enter the promised land, now it's judgment for Canaan. Um, so we're going to see those two things that uh, do it. In the middle is this whole period of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. So God is active. He's on the move, not just with Israel, not just with individuals, but in the whole world. He blends his central thing of, of, of taking care of Moses and leading and directing him in with how he's directing things for Egypt 
And then finally, how things are happening in the world at large. But he was going to do it on his own timetable. The Israelites were crying for help. And yet, he didn't answer. For a long time, 40 years, they prayed and he didn't answer. But help was coming and it was right around the corner, but they didn't know it yet. Well, what's the so what then? As we go through Exodus and the story of Moses and his people, you're going to see many ways that Moses' life is similar to Jesus. God even compared Moses and Jesus in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. It says, I will raise up a prophet, he's talking to Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I command him. Two prophets. Moses' life was just a foreshadow, as dramatic as it was, to the prophet, the one who would be greater. Now, what did they have in common, Jesus and Moses? A billion things. But here's the one I picked out from this story. So the evil king tried to kill him as a baby. Happened to Moses, happened to Jesus. Sent into Egypt to preserve his life. That's what happened. Moses ended up with Egyptians to save his life from what, all the babies being murdered. And Jesus, of course, was sent to Egypt with Joseph and Mary until Herod was dead. Both of them saved women at the well. Moses redeemed Israel from slavery. Jesus redeemed us from the slavery of sin. They were both rejected by their own people, and they were tested for 40 years in the desert. Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. Broken and humble. That's the value system in God's kingdom. And he's working in us to conform us to the image of Christ and the image of Jesus, which means learning humility. And sometimes humility only comes when we've been broken. And God takes the broken and he makes something beautiful with it. You've probably heard of the uh, Japanese art of kintsuki. The potter takes a broken vessel that had lost its worth because it was broken, and he makes it into something even more valuable than it was to start. Here's the thing about brokenness. God doesn't leave us there. The master craftsman takes those broken pieces after we've been through those humiliating circumstances and makes something beautiful out of them. Most often, we don't see him at work at the time, but he is constantly, right now. When you feel like your life is in pieces and you've ruined everything, I want you to think of Moses. Think of that Hebrew nation, because he is on the move, whether we see it or not. Paul wrote, he who began a work in you will be faithful to complete it. Sometimes God puts us in the desert, in times when they're excruciatingly hard, but the end result will be a thing of beauty. We will more fully reveal Christ in us, and there's no greater purpose for our lives than that.